Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And today we have an amazing show. Not only do I have my co-host, retired NYPD detective, and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. There he is. I picked him right out of Brooklyn, right out of the air out of Brooklyn. And here he is on the screen. But we also have, and it's a treat to have him again, retired Brooklyn assistant district attorney and chief of the Homicide Bureau, uh, Michael Vecchioni. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Bill. Thanks for having me, Phil. How are you? Happy Sunday. Absolutely. And not only is Mike a retired Brooklyn district attorney, but I'm going to put three of the books, and I know he's written more than this, but I don't have time to feature all of them. Friends of the Family, Inside Story of the Mafia Cops, uh, Crooked Brooklyn, and this is his latest book, Homicide is My Business. So he's a multi-talented guy. Uh, folks, I just want to talk about, we're hearing a lot, you know, in this case, besides the fact that it's a spectacular case, there's so much noise out there. And much of the noise comes from the media because they, they 24-hour news cycle, they want to keep it relevant and they keep pushing out new stuff. But also it's coming from social media, and that's where we get into problems. We get into just rumors and innuendo and just things that are out and out outrageous. And this case doesn't need outrageousness. It's already got that with the facts. And some of the things that we learned this week, uh, factually, you know, that the perpetrator was actually someone saw him in the crime scene. DM, only known by the initials DM, one of the female roommates, but saw him when he had a mask on, but heard his voice also. We also know that a sheath to a K-bar knife was left behind. And on the button that opens that sheath was DNA was recovered. And it was sort of made clear that the DNA that was recovered was not blood DNA, uh, they didn't speak about what it was, but if it was blood, I'm sure they would have said that, but they just said DNA. So we are sort of assuming that it's touch DNA, which it could be skin cells, could be sweat, could be a number of things. And then the unbelievable um, cell phone footage they have of hitting the cell tower and actually recreating the root of the perpetrator which all of this stuff in itself is unbelievable, strong, strong evidence. But yet you already hear the talking heads, the talking attorneys, the hired gun attorneys that are dying to get this case already trying to, they say, oh, this case shouldn't be tried in the media. They're already trying to do it by saying, oh, this is not very strong. But I think what we know as folks that are on the law enforcement side, that there's a lot more evidence than they let be known in the uh, probable cause affidavit. And to talk about this, uh, as I spoke about, Michael Vecchioni was the chief homicide prosecutor for the Brooklyn DA's office. Mike, what are your feelings on some of the multiple things I just spoke about? Well, I uh, I agree with everything you've just said, Bill. I, um, you know, I've been following this as you have. And I think, you know, when I read it, I read it as if um, from a point of view of someone who if I was still working, would be trying a case like this. And um, and to me, you build it the way that they have built it. And, and as you said, Bill, 
The thing is, they don't put everything into a probable cause affidavit. They put enough to be able to get what they're looking for from the affidavit, which in this case was either the arrest warrant or um, a search warrant or whatever it is that um, that they used it for. So um, so I think that the case is particularly strong, um, quite frankly. I thought, you know, last time we spoke before all of this evidence came out, I thought that maybe this wasn't such a slam dunk case. And I still don't think it is slam dunk, but I think it's gotten considerably stronger based on the uh, the evidence that uh, that has been released to the uh, to the media. And and as you said, the you know, the authorities are not going to release everything that they have. That would be stupid. That would be, you know, uh, uh, battling against themselves, giving the defense the chance to counteract all of that evidence. So so I think it's um, it's it's getting to be a very, very strong case. And, and I would have to say that I did say this to myself and, and, and to you guys before we went on the air. I think finding the DNA on that K-bar sheath, leather sheath, I think is a devastating piece of evidence for the defense, uh, for against the defendant. I really believe that. Um, it is unique in terms of, of it being, it's not some, you know, uh, uh, let's say a, a, a coffee cup or um, a glass or something which could be explained away as, you know, he was there once when he had a, a drink with these people. This is a, a knife sheath and it's a particular and it's and it's a knife sheath that fits the kind of knife that we have heard is the knife that that the medical examiner believes was the type of knife that that caused the injuries to these to these kids. So um, finding his DNA on that places him, in my opinion, and this is how I would argue it puts him in the house. And, and it was found, I believe in the bed or on the bed where these uh, two of the kids were, were, were slaughtered. So that's a hard thing to explain away at this point. So I believe that, you know, that plus the, plus the cell phone uh, pinging and, and his car being spotted at various times within the, the time frame of this murder at that point, uh, put that all together. It's a lo- all circumstantial, but it's the kind of circumstantial evidence that lo- the juries love, so to speak, uh, really. And and you can then argue as a prosecutor at the end of the case by putting each of these little pieces together and then showing them at the end, this is the full picture based on these little pieces of evidence. Whereas one in and of itself doesn't do the trick. But when you put them all together and you sew them together, you've got that tapestry of guilt is what I, I mentioned last time. So I like that. I like that word, uh, Mike, tapestry. Very good. I Before I bring Phil in, I just want to mention something, Phil, because this probably gets your Italian up. And uh, I've had Ooh. numerous people. <laughs> I've had numerous people in the chat say, oh, this was an easy case. And I want to pull out what hair I have left when I hear that that saying this is was an easy case. And these guys, the Moscow police, the Idaho State Police, the FBI, they did every single thing that we suggested they should be doing. They did every single thing. I don't know they weren't. I'm sure they weren't listening to our instructions, but they did every single investigative technique that we recommended. Phil? 
Well, obviously, this was not an easy case. Just look at some of the evidence they put forward. Now, in that uh, probable cause affidavit, they're not going to show everything, obviously, as Mike alluded to. You're going to put in specific things, a synopsis of what you think is going to satisfy a judge in another state to bring the individual back to Idaho. So again, they're not going to show all their cards because again, Mike alluded to it. You're going to show things and then you're going to give a defense team a head start on how to, uh, you know, impede this evidence and, and, uh, contradict it or, you know, call it into question. So, uh, you know, I think that that's obvious that they only put a small amount. There's probably a lot more evidence. Uh, we talked about some of the surveillance techniques that were done. They obviously had him under surveillance and they saw him throwing out garbage in a neighbor's garbage pan at four o'clock in the morning, cleaning out the car. And we don't know what other evidence they were able to recover from the vehicle or from that garbage bale. So again, all of that stuff is going to be brought out going forward in the trial. But I want to talk a little bit about the, the sheet that Mike brought up. Now, again, we don't have the murder weapon as of yet, but we don't have a big leap to get to the fact that the, um, the uh, coroner or the medical examiner is going to be able to testify to the wounds that are going to be consistent with a K-bar knife. So they're not going to have the knife in hand, so to speak, although they may. But if they don't, they don't have the knife in hand, but we're going to have the sheet for the knife and we're going to describe the uh, actual a weapon, uh, the uh, wounds on the on the victim's bodies, that it's consistent with that. So we're going to be able to put that together. And then you're going to have on the snap, as Bill alluded to, it looks like it's going to be touch DNA that matches the perpetrator in this case. So I think that right there is probably the strongest piece of evidence, although there may be some blood from the perpetrator at the scene we think could be commingled. There is a, a possibility that he cut himself. So again, all of those things together is going to be a nice tight package. I only see the, uh, the only thing that I think that is going to be maybe uh, the strongest piece of defense evidence is going to be why uh, DM, and I'm going to refer to her as that, she's being uh, outed in media. They're, they're using her name, and I don't think it's necessary. I don't think she should be attacked. We don't know what was going through that young girl's mind at the time that she didn't call the police. Perhaps, uh, you know, and I, I read a story in the paper today. It was alluded to by a law enforcement source that possibly intoxication played a role in why she acted the way she did. But there's only one person that knows why she acted the way she did, and that's her. And I'm sure that maybe in her mind it was a reasonable explanation and it seems odd to all of us and 100% it seems very odd that police weren't called for a period of time and again when uh, the police were called uh, friends of uh, you know these these two surviving uh, people that were in the house were called before the police so again we don't know what the exact reason was I don't think she should be attacked however I think that is something that the defense may go to work on guys yeah, before well, my, uh, Mike, I just want to, yeah. this is so important, this video. Oh, sure. I want to play this. What happened on the night of the murder of the four college students in Idaho. We've also learned about a surveillance operation that led to the arrest of the suspect who was seen placing garbage bags into neighbor's bins. John Miller, CNN law enforcement analyst, uh, is with us. Thanks very much. The affidavit said so much because we didn't know much in terms of how they got to this suspect and why. You know, the affidavit is the anatomy of a modern criminal investigation. I mean, how many times over the last seven weeks did we hear people say the case isn't going anywhere? The police aren't telling us anything. You know, why isn't it solved already? But the affidavit tells us that really from the day of the murder, they start with the video canvas. Then they develop pictures of a white Honda Elantra. OK, it's a car, not a person. They don't have a plate. But then they ask other police departments, you know, to look for that car. 
a college police officer finds one. They then look at the owner of that car. On December 23rd, they get the cell phone record showing the owner of that car has been what appears to be from the record staked out in the area of that murder house a dozen times since August. So they start to zero in on Brian Kohlberger. But when you get into the affidavit, the chilling details, um, a downstairs surviving witness hears crying upstairs and a voice saying, it's okay, I'm here to help you. The dog barking, more crying, um, and then sees a figure clad in black walk out the door through the sliding glass uh, wearing a black mask. It's frightening even to read. It turns out, as people were saying, um, and I guess everyone sort of thought, what's going on? Doesn't anyone know anything? Isn't there any evidence? Turns out there was a whole lot that they well, were working on that we just weren't aware of. A whole lot. But just like, and I've been in cases like this before, where you've got great leads and they fizzle, and then you have other leads working, and then one of them starts to pan out. There was a lot of evidence, but it came in bits at a time. And then literally two days before Christmas really accelerates. But some of the, some of the interesting things that haven't come out in the affidavit uh, they're staked out in Pennsylvania at Brian Kohlberg's house, at, a, at his family's house, in a very rural area. And the surveillance team that's watching from a pretty great distance uh, sees him come out and clean the car from top to bottom, inside and out, using surgical gloves to handle items um, as if, you know, the car was about to be sold almost. Um, they see... That's the part that I wanted... And I had said on an earlier show that I think if I was doing that surveillance and I was the boss calling the shots, I'd have said, let's take them right now. And okay. you may, you guys may disagree with me. Many may disagree, but we have the emergency exception to a search warrant. Exactly. We, we know that that's the car and he's cleaning evidence. He's cleaning the crime scene. And then to put a little icing on the cake, he starts throwing his garbage in his neighbor's garbage pails. I always do that. You know, I just don't, <laughs> jokingly, who does that? Well, a criminal does that. Mike, your thoughts? Well, the argument is, as as far as the garbage is concerned, consciousness of guilt. I mean, that's that's what I would argue if I was a prosecutor, and I'd have to battle that if I'm the defense attorney. Now, the same thing with the with the car. The car was is and cleaning the car was one to get rid of evidence. That's how I would argue it. And two, it's also what do, do we know what time of day he was doing that? Was it at night as well? It was it was 0400. 0400 was the garbage. I don't know what time the cleaning of the car okay. was. But no, I think, I think he, he was cleaning the car at 0400, well, and he had okay. surgical gloves on. Yeah, and that's that's another that's another piece of of consciousness of guilt that I would argue. Who cleans their car at four o'clock in the morning? I mean, that is that's that's ridiculous. Unless there's a, a really good reason to do it, and um, and he had a good reason to get rid of anything that may very well have been brought by him from the house into the car that they could then use against him. So, um, so Mike, I, let me I, ask you a quick question, Mike. I don't mean to yeah. interrupt, but I, I want to get to this point. Bill made a point, and I agree with him. I think if I was part of that surveillance team, I would have wanted to go in and grab him at that point. Yeah. Now, you as the prosecutor, we did know that now we have the we, – we're pretty sure that there was a vehicle scene, and now he's got that vehicle. They were on to him with the DNA match. Do you, do you 
feel that you would have given a green light, let's say, to to arrest him at that point and preserve that evidence? What do yes. you think, Mike? Yes, for that reason. The reason I agree is with Bill on that. that. The reason is I would want whatever it is that he cleaned out of that car to be able to analyze it and use it at uh, at trial. That's that's why I would say grab him because what what they let him do was essentially help himself. If there was something that he brought out of that house into the car, like blood from, let's say, those kids um, on his clothing or on his gloves or on, you know, on the knife, then that was all. Then they've lost they've lost the opportunity to use it because they let him, you know, let him do what he did with the car. So, yeah, I agree with Bill as well. I would have grabbed and Mike, him. you know, the downside is obviously they were waiting for a search warrant based on, I believe, DNA that they may have recovered earlier. Uh, from the garbage, which turned out to be his father's DNA, which matched him like 99.5% chance right. that it was him. Um, but I also question why, and we used this word before in our last show, why didn't he try to surreptitiously get his DNA from another source prior to them following following him halfway across the country uh, to conduct this surveillance? And we all know the famous two car stops. Yeah, uh, yep. that they conducted, which, you know, that could, uh, I'm not saying problematic, but a defense attorney will paint that as, oh, did you, did he really commit a vehicle and traffic law violation or was this uh subterfuge? I'm going to use another good word, Mike. I don't yeah, know if you heard that one. Another canonism. Was it, was it subterfuge to just get him stopped and take a look at him? I think they were looking to see if he had cuts on his hands. Right. Yeah, but those two car stops, Billy, could have been the reason why he was throwing the garbage out. That might have raised him up. And yeah. I think that you made the point. The emergency exception to the search warrant was, I think that was right in there. I, I mean, listen, I'm not trying to criticize them. They obviously did a lot, a lot of work and they got the guy. And I'm pretty certain that he's the person that's responsible for this. But I really think that maybe that would have been the time to, to jump on him and, and make the arrest. Look, I agree. And here's another thing you have to factor into this is that, Obviously, if they had if they trailed him across the country, they had a very, very good idea, if not the legal ask, you know, the, the legality to to do it. But they knew at that point that this was our man. So that coupled with the idea that he's now essentially cleaning his car, which could very well be to get rid of evidence that was in that car. I think you're right, Bill. I think that that is that certainly they could have arrested him at that point. And even if they didn't execute the search warrant, what they do is arrest them, put them in custody, and then wait. I'm sure that there's a period of time they could have waited and and gotten the search warrant very quickly. They may have even got an ex, you're right, an expedited one in, in Pennsylvania if um, you know at that point. So the question well, Mike, it's just also when we talk about transfer evidence, it's so damn important and uh, we all Low card, we've mentioned low cards principle of exchange, and that is so so powerful. Now, they well, I'm sure he didn't totally clean up the car, but they lost probably very significant evidence allowing him, yes, to clean that car. It's it's the same kind of quality of evidence as that sheath is. If he had, let's say, a drop of blood from one of the people that he killed, you know, in that car. And was able to get rid of it. Well, that's a that, that's that's good for him. It's very bad for the prosecution. But imagine if he if it was there, they grabbed him before he could clean the interior, and they found that drop of blood. That drop of blood coupled with the sheath. Man, this guy 
pleads guilty. It seems to me. I I, I can't imagine that he gets away with it. I, I don't. I don't think he's going to get away with it now either with this the DNA in the house. But um, uh, I'm sorry with the on the sheath. I I, I just think that they're allowing him to go cross country. I always found to be very strange. I never really understood what that was all about, except that perhaps when he got in his car and took off with his father, they may not have had enough to arrest them at that particular point, but he was certainly a person of interest that they didn't want to lose him. That's the only thing that I can think of uh, for allowing him to go cross country. Absolutely. Let me finish the video and then we'll get him um, taking out the trash at four o'clock in the morning, Brian Kohlberg himself, um, and then putting it in the neighbor's bin next door. And why are why are there? Why is he under surveillance? One, they're waiting to get probable cause to arrest him so he doesn't get away, disappear. They don't have to find him. But more importantly, they're there to see if they can recover that abandonment sample, something they threw away that would have his DNA on it. And that's why they went to the trash, collected it, and made that match that allowed the judge to okay that warrant. The most important thing, though, is motive. So we still don't have motive. And the clue to that is not only, Don, is it not in the affidavit, but, you know, Poppy. We went over that before. But motive is not. In, no, it, people no. love to see it, but it's, it's not, not mandatory. No, right, it's not know, an element. And you see who raised it. It was the commentator. Those, that's, you know, the guys like him. They, they would love to argue, well, there's no motive, so it's a weak case. That, that is so far from the, from the fact and so far from the truth. It's just it's nice to have, but it's not necessary, as we talked about. I think that's where a lot of confusion comes in. Also, you know, you're dealing now with, um, with jury pools. And uh, I mean, I would be, you'd have to be living on a rock, under a rock, to never heard of this case. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it does sort of poison the jury pool to think, oh, no motive, no, no conviction, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what people think. And, and I mentioned last time we were together that one of the things that a judge argues and that you as a prosecutor, make sure you say at some point in jury selection is that motive is not an issue here. And the judge will tell you that that's the law. So don't even think about it. And I'm going to be upfront with you. I don't have a motive to this case. All I have is evidence that he did it. And that's the way you have to start with the jury from the very beginning, from the very beginning. Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Snug with Pug, thank you for the $7.99 Super Chat. Very much appreciated. If you're not subscribed to this show, please go on our YouTube. Hit that subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. This is a podcast from a police perspective with law enforcement experts. And we'll give you the facts like... uh, like uh, Bill Gannon used to say on Dragnet, just the facts, ma'am, just, just the, the facts. facts. That's 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 what we're giving you. And I think that's important, especially in a case like this. There's, as I describe it, there's a lot of noise surrounding this case, you know. And when you get the real facts of what is, is occurring and what should be occurring, we realize, you know, the Moscow police took a lot of hits early on with this case. And it turned out they did a fantastic job. The results are an arrest, but they're not done. There's not now it goes into the prosecution phase, and that's what we are discussing now. Mike, one of the other things, and I'll, I'll bring Phil into this also, is that we basically have an eyewitness here, too not an eyewitness that's seeing the face, but seeing the physicality of the perpetrator. Correct that he's approximately 5'10 to 6'1, 
He's got bushy eyebrows. He's got he's got an athletic build. Build. He's not muscular, but he's got an athletic build. And part two of that, she hears his voice. Voice, correct. So if you guys would have asked me this question, I would have. This is what my answer would be. The question was, how would you start this case off if you were trying it? And how I would start it is that that woman, that that young woman, would be the first witness that I call to the stand, and she can't point at him and say, that's the guy, but she lays the groundwork for so much of the case. Then, then I take the evidence that I have and I do what I said before. I start with this block, add this block, add this block, add this one. And before you know it, you've got a house, but she is the one to start it. And she, you can bet dollars to donuts that her on the stand. If, if, you know, she, she's, Let's assume for the moment that she's an ordinary teenage kid or a little bit older than that young woman. She's going to cry on the stand as well, which is going to help the prosecution. And that's going to set the stage for the entire case for the prosecution and the jury. They're going to see this young girl and they're going to say to themselves, particularly if they have kids of their own. Oh, boy, I, I, I feel sorry for her. I can't imagine my kid being in that situation. So she is witness number one. And part of that is going to be the description of this person, the way that you've just laid it out, Bill. And the rest of the case is going to fill in who that description fits and why it fits him. And, and I think that, um, that that's the how, you know, that's how I would try the case. So. Uh, Mike, I agree with you on that because uh, the blocks that you're going to uh, that you're going to put in, you were using that as an analogy. Blocks, uh, you're going to be able to uh, by the cell phone technology alone, showing that he was leaving the location, right. that he came to the location, or he headed out of his house at two. I believe it was two fifty-seven in the morning, and we're going to be able to narrow down the exact time of the yep. uh, murders taking place because there was activity on uh, one of the victim's cell phones. Uh, yeah, I think it was on uh, Instagram or one of those, uh, Snapchat. Uh, at around four, there was a delivery. So again, we're going to be able to narrow down and place him in and around the area. So I think that, yeah, that's that's definitely a good point that bringing her on as the first witness. I agree Absolutely. With that. And at, at the end, I'm going to say that, you know, she the mask came off, folks. The rest of the evidence took that mask off him because of the, the pinging of the cell phone, the car. The other thing I wanted to ask you guys is do you think that the police checked, and I'm sure that they did, how many white Elantras are registered to people in in and around that particular area of, uh, of Moscow? Um, I, 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 you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but it seems to me that, that a white Elantra is not necessarily the kind of car that you would have if you're living in uh, in in Moscow, Idaho, you would want. Believe something- it or not, Mike, they were talking about up to twenty two thousand in the state at the time. In- I don't know if that's one hundred percent correct because that sounded very excessive to me. Okay. White Elantras that 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 does sound like a lot to but, me. But, but Idaho's a big. It's going out. Idaho is a big state in terms yes. of of of, of uh, you know uh, square mileage. I would try to narrow it down. How if I'm if I would do it now because I I would like to use this if I'm the prosecutor. And say, you know, it was not, this is not a coincidence. There are, let's say, six Elantras in in this area, 20 Elantras. And then I would have the cops go out and talk to everybody who owns an Elantra and say, where were you at that particular time? And and eliminate all of them from the, all all the possibility of them being at that that location. 
but it's get another one of those building blocks in the case that, you know, that you're looking for. Mike, would you do a voice lineup? It depends on the woman. I, 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 if let's say all things being perfect, she was, um, she was not high. She was not intoxicated. Um, she was not necessarily just awakened out of her sleep, you know, and was groggy. Um, and she was, you know, she was able to give me a, a story that made sense. Then I would seriously think about doing a, um, a, a voice lineup. And the other thing is, what is it that do we know what he what she said? He he said, I don't I don't remember reading what the words he, were. According to what I read in the affidavit, he doesn't say anything to her. He just walks past. And now there was also uh, some talking heads talking about, well, perhaps she was in the darkened doorway and he just walked past that didn't notice her. Or did they come face to face in the affidavit? It said they came face to face, but I don't think he says anything to her. However, in the affidavit, it also does say that at one point uh, he said, I'm here and I'm going to help you. Something to that effect to one of the victims, not yeah, to her. Yeah. So that's so, the words that she heard that would be the voice lineup. Right. So the danger bill is, is, as you well know, is that if you do this and it turns out that you don't get a match, well, now you've given the defense an argument yeah. as to why it's not him. Right. And, I think, I think I would err on the side of not doing it then. Yeah. I think that it depends. Yeah. It really depends on several factors. And um, if, if it's not a, again, I always use this term slam dunk. I don't know why, I guess because I'm a basketball fan, but the bottom line is if that's not, you're not sad, uh, um, sure, as sure as you can be that he, she's going to say, yes, that's the voice. Then I wouldn't do it because um, because you're giving the defense, uh, you know, a um, uh, something to use against you. So absolutely. Uh, Schmitty, thank you for the ten dollar super chat. Schmitty says, I wonder if the DoorDash delivery person would be a key witness. The delivery happened so closely to the crime. He she may have seen something. And said something that night. We just don't know it yet. You're, Schmitty, you're hundred percent right. That person was hundred percent correct. Hundred percent correct. The yeah. cops may already know. The cops may already have, have. I'm sure that they have. They've interviewed the person, and um, and and that person may have seen something that she didn't know she was seeing. Well, he didn't know that she, he was seeing. You know, um, that that becomes part of the case, or becomes important to the case now. Absolutely, Mike. Let, let me bring up a point. Were you going to play this, Bill? Yeah, I'm going to play this. Keith All right behind at the crime scene, which our next guest says could help indicate who exactly the killer was targeting. Forensics expert, distinguished scholar of applied forensics, Jacksonville State University, Joseph Scott Morgan joins us now. Good morning, sir. Thank you for joining us. Give me your top line thoughts of why it indicates who the killer might have been targeting. Good morning, Emily. Yeah, you know, we have to think about these two victims, these two female victims were actually co-sleeping. They were, according to the affidavit, they were actually found in the same bed. And this uh, sheath, uh, which we've been talking about for some time, certainly we've been talking about the knife, the sheath was actually found immediately adjacent to one of the remains there. And the recovery of the DNA from this sheath uh, actually originates from what's referred to as the button snap. This is the location on the sheath that holds the knife in place. If you're wearing it on your hip, for instance, it keeps it from falling out. But in order to release the knife from the sheath, that's, that button snap has to be flipped at that moment in time. So if you think about the dynamics of this event, if the intruder, if the accused enters into the bedroom and begins to attack these two victims simultaneously, he would have essentially 
I hate to say this, would have actually pounced on them in the bed, perhaps, because they're both there together. He would have sheathed the knife and then begun to do his work at that point in time. And mm -hmm. I think probably dropping the sheath right there. Essentially, what, what you're arguing here is that he unsheathed the knife at the primary point where he started to execute these four teenage, these four kids, uh, which the primary target is the first place he did it. What is the probability of transfer DNA, which is being thrown around uh, by many people who probably don't have anywhere near your qualifications? <laughs> well, it, it is very real. Uh, there's an old principle in forensics called Lacard's principle of exchange. Every contact leaves a, leaves a trace that's over 100 years old. It applies here. So if you think about the perpetrator, uh, just absolutely devastating these individuals, these poor victims, blood will transfer to him. Now, anything that comes off of him, conversely, transfers to their bodies as well. And it's not just blood. We're talking about any kind of touch DNA, like dead uh, skin cells that are, that are sloughing off. Uh, you also have hair transfer, fiber transfer. All of these things are going through. And here's, here's key. If he has blood on him, He's going to contact the surfaces that he's walking on and touching. Powerful Great, That guy is great, Joseph Scott Morgan. You know, there's so many, uh, we call I call them talking heads anyway. And there's, there's so many different talking heads in this case. And he happens to be one of the best with great credentials. And he's reasonable. He's not sensational. And him saying that he probably pounced on both of them, impossible not to have transfer evidence in that way if he attacked him in the way uh, Joseph Scott Morgan is describing. Absolutely. I agree. I, I don't see how he could not have left something more than just the the uh, DNA on that sheet. It's, it's, it's there somewhere. And, and I would not be surprised that at the end of the day here, before this trial starts, once they or when it starts, that the prosecutor stands up and says, we have his DNA on this, 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 and this in the house. I, I, it's, it's hard for me to believe that that won't happen. So, um, Mike, there's, there's a story in today's paper about a Facebook discussion where a person who was named Papa Roger made numerous comments in a group about the savage murders. Uh, the person says, uh, Papa Roger posts, of the evidence released, the murder weapon has been consistent as a large fixed blade knife. This leads me to believe that they found the, the sheet, the, the knife sheet. Now, uh, there's conjecture in the story that perhaps this was Brian Kohlberger using that handle. Uh, but I would think that even if it's not him, if it's a coincidence, I think that uh, the prosecutors need to find who this person was, interview him, and find out where they were at the time of the murder so that way they could be excluded. Because I could see a defense attorney saying, how could someone know this about this case that the sheet was left behind? Perhaps this is the murderer, you know. So what do you think about that, Mike? Is that something that they should hopefully follow up? Absolutely. I mentioned it before we went on the air that um, if I'm the prosecutor here, I am doing whatever I can to get Facebook to um, to to release the the identity of the person with that handle. Um, that's a very very important and again a devastating piece of evidence if it turns out that it's Kohlberger. Right. It is absolutely positively. But you know something, guys, I, I've had experience with trying to get information out of social media companies. They are very very it's very very difficult to um, to get information out of them and, and and even when you go with you know with with 
um, papers, subpoenas, or um, or orders from from the court, then you're in for a fight because then there's going to be an appeal, and there's going to be an appeal on top of that. It's it's a very difficult thing. However, so having said all of that, I would do whatever I could. In fact, if I was the prosecutor, the lead prosecutor in this case, I would assign someone to simply another prosecutor to just work on that. Just do that because if we get it, then our job becomes that much easier at the end of the day. So, You know what, Mike, uh, what we haven't raised the fact yet is his route and the fact that he had been by that house 12 times before the murder. Right. So his cell phone was pinging on the cell site right near that house. That's very, very powerful evidence also. Without a doubt. Yeah. And and the time of day that it's pinging is even is more important. I, 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 not more important, but it's but but adds to the importance of of the fact that it did ping. I mean, just think if those pings were at um uh, are we talking about the pings the night of the murder bill or no, he's talking about the, according to according to the New York Times. According to the New York Times, they say that um, shortly before the crimes, a white Hyundai Elantra had right. made three passes along the dead end street where the killings took place. It returned the fourth time at 0404 a.m., yep. uh, the time the surviving woman said she had woken up. So he's stalking them. Without a doubt. You know, really, the, the 12 times that he was in the uh, area before, they were either late evening or early morning hours. Those could have been dry runs. He was, yeah. you know, he was doing his recon Correct. of the area. So That's those right. are all powerful things. That's what I was getting to before. Um, it looked like he was planning this and doing, as, as Phil just said, dry runs. How do I get in and out? What's the traffic like? How many people are around? You know, what time of day should I do it? Uh, that kind of thing. That's that's the argument that uh, that I would make if I'm the prosecutor in this case. And the um, and and the idea that he's in that area that night, late at night or early in the morning, however you want to characterize it, um, to me is another signal, uh, another sign that this guy was um, was staking the place out for the right time to walk through those doors and and do what he had to do. You know, Mike, I think that one of the things that well, I hope and I think maybe the police already have it is the prior potential relationship with the victims. And I don't mean a relationship. I mean, even just coming in contact with them at a local bar. Yeah, you hope so. Uh, the restaurant. The restaurant they, worked they worked as waitresses, two of them. That, I think, could be super important also. We, of course, not being uh, privy to the case folder, don't know if they have any of that. If they right. have that, and look, we can all say as much as we want, oh, this is a slam. It's never a slam dunk when you no. deal with the jury. So this Absolutely. is all icing on the cake, but surely none of this is, you know, in fact, a conviction. You can you can never have enough of that icing, Bill, believe me. I, I've, I've witnessed it. I've been involved with it. I've been the, the victim of it. It's, um, you can't have enough of it. If... It, it, juries also love to be, um, they're, they're, they, they watch television, they watch movies, and they love to be entertained. That's why I always felt that circumstantial evidence cases were some of the strongest cases that I ever had, because what you're doing is you're doing what, uh, what happens on a TV show, where segment one introduces one piece of the, ev of the case. Then segment two, after the commercial, you get the second piece. Then after the third, the next commercial, you get the third piece. And juries wait, wait, wait. And that's why 
if you can start, if you can tell the story as to where he met with these people the first time or he that he did meet with them at some point prior to this particular night and came across them. Juries love that kind of stuff. Love it. And if there was any interaction where he was, you know, he tried to pick one of these young women up and they they just, you know, told to get lost. Well, if that comes out somewhere along the line, then, uh, you know, it's another nail in his coffin. There's Absolutely. the motive. There's the motive. If they Absolutely. Can, they then can you've got some type right. of contact and where he was rebuffed. I think that's, that's your slam dunk motive right there. I, I would bet you again, dollars to donuts that that's exactly what happened here. That, that he we, was, Bill and I said that right from the beginning. We of that opinion yeah. from the beginning that it was either someone in the, not maybe not in the immediate circle, but in the, uh, just the outer circle of, you know, contact with the victims that possibly was uh, either rebuffed or some type of, uh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, what we call the dis, a disrespect in his mind, you know, obviously, you know, she could have, you know, he could have just maybe made, a pass and she said no thank you I have a boyfriend and in his mind his psychotic uh you know psychopathic mind that was a tremendous disrespect and now I'm gonna kill you know well Phil well, it's mean, like that that they, they're raising that thing called incel and and tell you the truth that's the first time I've ever heard that term and what it means is involuntarily celibate. celibate yeah and there's a group of these weirdos on the internet that actually stalk women and they're claiming he could be an incel I've as I said I've Never really heard that term before. I don't think it's very popular in New York City, but that's a potential possibility. Yep. the The other term for the, for those people are losers. That's the that's yes. the, that's what they are. <laughs> I that's heard the New York City before, term. Mike. I heard yeah. that one before. Guys who who try and are just rebuffed and rebuffed and rebuffed. Then they certainly then they then they all get together and they make themselves all feel good by calling themselves you know this incel you know this uh, we're celibate even though they're only celibate because nobody would want to be with them. You know, that's the, that's the thing. But exactly. it turns out that, that he is somewhere in this guy's background, either because of the way he looked when he was earlier, uh, when he, when he was younger in terms of, he was much more heavy. He was a kind of guy who was not, didn't seem to be, have a lot of friends, that kind of thing. And, um, and, and if they establish that, if they establish that, well, then you can argue, that even if it if they don't have the specific con, uh, you know confrontation or con, you know conversation between him and these women, that you can argue artfully if in a summation that that's where this whole crime started with with his you know in his head and and in his feeling that he's been rebuffed. That's Absolutely. that's how we do it. As long as you do it according to what you have in evidence, then you're okay with that. Uh, ACB, brilliant channel. Thank you for the 30. I don't know what denomination of money it is, but thank you so much. Brilliant channel. I've been a silent viewer and fan for over a year. Love you guys. Best wishes from Israel. From Israel. Thank you so much. Shalom. Sounds like shekels, Billy. That might be 30 shekels. Shekels. Could be. Whatever it is, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime right. from a police perspective, you're in the right place. Please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up. And if you want to help us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels and also a YouTube channel membership with five different levels. And I saw someone else gave us a super chat. I'm sorry I missed it. Uh, I will call you out later on. Uh, it's it's tough while you're concentrating on this to bring up everyone. But thank you so much, all you folks that contribute to this. 
You know, one of the most amazing things about this, and I think the whole criminal element and even the legal profession is really getting nervous in regards to how far um, DNA has come. And of course, genetic genealogy, uh, we spoke to the Colleen Fitzpatrick the other night, or I, I commented when Duty Ron had her on his show. And I asked, I asked the question, if this Y chromosome technology becomes the new standard, is it going to get rid of CODIS? And she says, CODIS is going to be obsolete in a year or two. And I was like, that's unbelievable. But, but to understand all of this stuff, it's, re- it's really somewhat complicated. Let me play a little bit of this, and we'll see if we can understand a little bit of it. Sure. Behind bars after investigators linked his DNA at the crime scene to the DNA taken from the trash at his parents' home. To help explain how this all works, I want to bring in genetic genealogist Cece Moore. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for, ha- for having me. Well, so many questions here, Cece. So investigators claim that DNA analysis linked to the Idaho murder suspect Brian Koberger started with a sample of DNA from his trash belonging to the Koberger's father. How exactly does this work? I'm not convinced that it started with that. I still think it's very possible that investigative genetic genealogy was used to point them in his direction, or after they received the tip about the car, it may have helped them to vet that tip and to determine that he actually was, his family tree was consistent with the DNA sample from the knife sheath. They don't have to include everything in the affidavit and genetic genealogy should not be used for the basis of an arrest. So in my opinion, it would be proper that they left that out. So I think it's very likely there's a lot more to this story yet to come out, but either way, it ended up with them following him to his father's, his parents' home and doing what we call a trash pull. This has happened in lots of my cases as well. They have to collect that surreptitious DNA and compare that to their crime scene DNA before they can arrest anyone. In this case, there were multiple people in the home. They wouldn't have known exactly whose DNA it was until they were testing it. And they found that male DNA that ended up being the father of the person who left the DNA behind on the knife sheath. And so that is a standard paternity test. That's the type of test that's been accepted in courtrooms for decades to establish paternity. So that is very, very high confidence. Well, we saw investigators remove what looks to be bed frames and and actually uh, the mattress of the bed, and it appeared to have bloodstains on it. Can you kind of point out what exactly investigators are looking for? This was such an incredibly horrible crime scene, and we're learning more and more all the time, that I think it's very likely there's additional DNA from Brian at that scene. They have told us about the DNA on the the sheath of the knife. Now, that was probably touch DNA. Could have been blood, but most likely touch DNA. I wouldn't be at all surprised if he left additional DNA behind. We know from the witness statement that at least his eyebrows were showing, and it sounds like his hair wasn't even covered. So he may have left uh, hair behind as well, which also contains DNA. And advancements in technology have meant we can get quite a lot of information from even a rootless hair now. So I think both they and the defense are scouring that crime scene to see what else is there. 
I'm not, I'm a little confused about why those mattresses are being moved right now and who exactly is doing that and the method that they're doing that. But I think there's been a lot of work on that crime scene already, gathering any possible physical evidence to in the prosecution's case, try to support their case and in the defense's case to try to find somebody else's DNA that they can try to pin this crime on. So many questions. So they're at the crime scene. Well, if you could kind of explain actually how DNA really works, finding that at the crime scene, is it spit? Is it, we, we know it's semen, we know it's, which wasn't left at the crime scene. We know it can be fingerprints, footprints, but what else can it be? Everywhere we go, we leave our DNA behind. And because technology has advanced to be so sensitive sensitive now, we are able to detect that DNA, even if someone doesn't leave behind the optimal DNA sample, which would be blood, semen, or even saliva. They can leave their skin cells. They can leave their hair. They can leave a uh, hair from their leg even. All of these things contain the blueprint that makes us unique. And that means that each of us has unique DNA unless we have a, an identical twin. And therefore we can be identified by that. Now, if someone is in the law enforcement database because they've committed another violent crime and been caught, then that's pretty easy. They just do a one-to-one -one comparison with 20 genetic markers. They create that profile in the crime lab. If they don't get that match, they can send that DNA out to an advanced lab to create a much more in-depth profile. Thank you for watching. I find that so fascinating. He's and very, very smart. Very, very. You know, you know, Mike, it also makes me feel good as a law enforcement or former law enforcement officer that people aren't going to get away with rapes. People won't become serial killers, serial rapists, because they're going to catch them early on through science. And we knew early on with this case, that was what Phil and I said very early on. We said, Science is going to solve this case. Absolutely. And it's when you see this woman, Cece Moore, she's brilliant. And the woman that Duty Ron had on the other night, Colleen Fitzpatrick, brilliant. And, you know, I, I know that they're explaining things that probably 80% or 70% of the audience doesn't fully understand because it's very complicated. And I think most lawyers don't understand it. You're absolutely right. Can I tell you guys just a little, a quick story? I remember. Sure. Phil, I'm not sure if you are, are in working at this point. Do you remember a case involving a rabbi in the 6-6 precinct who was set upon on on he was walking home from shul on Sabbath and he was um, he was killed and it led to the 6-6 precinct being invaded by by his uh, his Fort Surrender his they call yeah. it. Yeah. Okay, Fort Surrender. So I had that case. That was my case. And and as part of the when when the way that they, the, the people who were arrested were arrested is that they found, the police found a shirt, a T-shirt in a social club where these guys had, had gone to after the murder. And it contained the blood of the, and it had the blood of the rabbi on it. How did they, so at that point, the only thing I knew when I was started this case was you knew, you could, you know what the, the rabbi's blood type was and you know uh, what the type of blood, the type uh, of the blood on the on the shirt, and hopefully it was the same. And you could argue, well, it was the same blood type. Well, when I got when I started this investigation and got to the point where um, we were now looking at this stuff, there was a, a guy from the medical examiner's office. His name is Bob Shaler, who 
said to me, Mike, I can do more than that now. We can tell you that, um, and this was a T-shirt belonging to one of these kids, the, one of the murderers. I can tell you to the, I can eliminate like 999 million people in the world, you know, um, in terms of their blood because of what's in, uh, the, what's in, in, in the blood that's on this kid's shirt. I said, Doc, well, what are you talking about? He said, oh, it's called DNA analysis. I had never heard of this. I had no idea what he was talking about. And well, I, I, I didn't ultimately try the case because I left the office uh, and went into private practice. But the people who tried it, they had Dr. Shaler on the stand. And that was one of the pieces of evidence that that convicted this kid of, um, of murdering this rabbi. So so you, my, the, the whole point of this is, Bill, there are still even today, there are still lawyers who are, pra who are practicing who have no clue as to how devastating DNA evidence is in terms of a defense or um, to a defense if it's if it's collected properly and handled properly. So, um, you know, Mike, that's one of the biggest things is how was it was it collected properly? Was it yeah. handled? We saw the O.J. Simpson case. And I know there's a lot of people really young in the chat, but that case was a uh, sort of a uh, showing how evidence should not be handled. Correct. Correct. That's how they created so much doubt. And, but when when it's handled correctly, it's devastating. devastating. Evidence. And and I think I, I have an answer for the young lady who was on before the woman who was on before about why they were collecting the, um, the the mattresses in the way that they did. And now why they're doing it now. I think that it's preservation. I think that they have done all of the, um, you know, the, the the scientific work on those mattresses while they were in the, um, you know, in the in the, the place in the house. And now they have to. And probably got, I think she's right. I probably got Kohlberger's DNA off one or more of those of those uh, those items. So now you got to keep them and you got to preserve them so that the defense has the right to to send experts in to examine them as well. So I think that's why they're um, they. What about what, what about displaying the mattress in court, Mike? You think that could be a possibility? Oh, without as, a doubt. as opposed to a picture. Or a video? Oh, without, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I mean, it would be much more powerful if you bring oh, in this mattress with this huge blood stain on it. So no I think question. that could be a possibility. That's no what question. I was thinking when I saw that. Yep. Now that the, and, and if I'm the defense attorney, what I tell ask the judge is to not allow it to happen because it's too inflammatory to the jury. Right. So really, yeah, and of course it is. That's why the prosecutor wants it. But uh, but absolutely, I, I wouldn't use pictures if I had. If I had the, uh, you know, the mattresses, let's say in this case, and the bed frames, that's another place where I believe that if if blood seeped out of or down, you know, on the mattress and then down the blood, the, the bed frames and other places are other places where uh, you can find uh, DNA. If it and and there may be other kinds of of DNA, as she said, hair, um, you know, a sweat. If if there's enough cells in the sweat to uh, to get it. Uh, then you're going to get something, um, you know, you're going to get the, if the victims touched anywhere of his skin, his face, his arms, there could be his DNA on their fingers, on their right. hands, which right. obviously their hands would have been bagged yeah. and examined at the, at the autopsy. So again, that's another uh, touch. DNA is, is something that we, we didn't know about touch DNA probably till the last 10 or 15 years, probably yeah. after uh, nine 11. I mean, when DNA was first uh, introduced to law enforcement, now, Mike, you were talking about that case. Was that like sometime in the early eighties? Does that sound right? Um, let's see. I left the office in, in 82 and in, in 81. So it okay. was before that it was like 79, 80. And that, yeah, that so, 
So I, I, my uh, memory of DNA was they would be able to tell you if it was human DNA, uh, obviously human blood, or if it was Correct. animal, and they'd be able to tell you male, female, only very limited. And now we've gone so much further with DNA. I mean, leaps and bounds, and we could actually, you could touch a surface and your DNA is left there. I mean, it's Correct. really amazing. Well, you know, according to Barbara Butcher, uh, because of 9-11, DNA yeah. technology advanced three generations. Yeah, yeah. I, and I that is, you know, I want to play a little bit of this. There's no doubt that there was some sexual component uh, involved in this case. And I don't mean in the attack, but I mean in the psyche of the perpetrator. And I want to play a little bit of Banfield. She had another talking head on that was talking about this. Okay. Cell phone data trail to the multiple sightings of a white Hyundai Elantra to the sheath of a still missing knife that's believed to be the murder weapon. If Brian Koberger is in fact the killer, he seems to have given police pretty much a roadmap right to his front door. And this, this is a man who was working towards a PhD in criminology. Again, if he's guilty, what happened? Was he blinded by passion or frightened out of his wits or did he wanna get caught? I'm joined now by someone who has tackled these questions before in actually thousands of other cases, from Lacey Peterson to J.C. Dugard. But Paul Holes is most famous as the former cold case investigator who helped take down the Golden State Killer after decades on the loose. He is the author of the memoir, Unmasked. Paul, I thought of you right away. We expected so little evidence in this affidavit, and it was a cascade of, frankly, mystery upon mystery, and yet we do have what we have. And what we have is that there was a bolo, a be on the lookout for white Elantra on November 25th. And I think it was the 29th that they they knew that he had one and they had his license with a description of him. They had so much so early. They had DNA on the, you know, the snap of the knife sheath um, that day. I, I don't understand how it takes so long. I don't know your business investigators, but help me. Well, you have to understand that the affidavit is is really a retrospective. And so the detective who's writing it is writing chronological order on when information came in. But when you start talking about this bolo for the white Hyundai Elantra, you have to understand that when they are initially investigated, they don't even have a license plate for this Elantra. So when they are now gathering data going to the state's DMV and, and, and reaching out to other law enforcement agencies and, and their data. Mike, I just want to bring up while, uh, while he's talking that it's a huge piece of evidence also that he changed the plates on the car and registered it uh, in another state to cover his ass. Five days after the murders. Mike. Without right. a doubt. Another, another consciousness of guilt kind of uh, uh, argument. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Databases. They're getting thousands of bits of information of different registered owners of white Hyundai Elantras. Now, maybe Brian Kohlberger's name was in that list, but they didn't know that he was the, the killer at that point in time. At the same time, you have this parallel process going on with the lab processing evidence, and it takes time. Now, they shockingly had this knife sheath that was left behind that ultimately had Kohlberger's DNA on it, which is just, for me, it's just crazy that they had such great evidence. But it takes time to go through 
to process not only the DNA from this sheath, but they have mountains of other evidence in the case that the lab is probably working in batches. So it probably took some time, seven days, 10 days before they get their initial DNA results back. So they are juggling multiple things that take time. And ultimately, the stars aligned. The DNA added up. They had a, a, a suspect who had a white Hyundai Elantra. And then as they dug further, circumstantial evidence really cemented the case. So that it's fascinating. I'm looking at this timeline and I've picked it all apart and made crazy notes looking through the, the affidavit. But November 29th, uh, a, a Washington State University police officer gets a, an Elantra and takes it right to Kohlberger's apartment. He, he sees that there's this Elantra. The, the Bolo's been out for five days and he or four days and he sees it at. By the way, that cop did a great job. He should get uh, a promotion, right, yeah. just like the guy who wrote the summons for the son of Sam. Son of Sam, yep. Right, that that cop should definitely get something for that. That's great police work. Cop Routine police work is great police work. Yep. He sees this one at at Koberger's apartment, so he can read the plate, and he says it's a it's a uh, Pennsylvania plate. If you were to look at that plate, you got a, a stop on August twenty first, where there is body cam video with a guy with bushy eyebrows. And we know from day one that Dylan Mortensen said the guy in my house that night had bushy eyebrows. Then you get a second body cam, and that's on October 14th. And that one was also, um, this one was also Washington State University officers, and there is body cam, presumably to show bushy eyebrows. So you have two videos there, plus a license, a driver's license that gives a description exactly exactly of the person that Dylan Mortensen described to the police. But then it looks like they didn't ask for the phone records, the historical phone records of this suspect because they, he his phone number during one of those traffic stops, right? He gave them his phone number during the October, oh, the August 21st. They didn't start looking for historics on that until December 23rd. That, that to me is a bit of a... Well, you know, and again, I think this is where, you know, the confusion comes in as you, know, you have this Washington State University cop who, who sees this white Hyundai Elantra. But this is one of many tips that law enforcement is fielding at the time. So until they have something that causes them to focus on Kohlberger, they're having to try to sort through all of these tips, you know, just because you have footage showing that you have a, a male that has bushy eyebrows, that isn't going to be sufficient to cause law enforcement to disregard all the other tips. This is where I believe that there's a likelihood that they had other more advanced DNA technology that was utilized that helped them focus in on Kohlberger. And then once they focused in based on that kind of technology, now they started adding things up. Oh, he drives a white uh, Elantra. You know, now you get the body cam footage. Now you get the cell phone records and the circumstantial case starts to cement itself. Did you have a, a bit of a flashback to the Golden State Killer? Because I got to say, I heard in this affidavit that Brian Koberger applied for an internship at the Pullman, Washington Police Department just in the fall, just a couple months ago. So presumably, it is sometime around the murder, right? The murder's on November 13th. Basically, what she's talking about now is just intangible, so I'm not going to go there. But uh, interesting, right? 
super interesting. And we all believe that they have tracked the trailers full of evidence. But again, they're not going to bring that up in the uh, probable cause affidavit because yeah. in discovery, exactly. they're going to eventually have to let them know during discovery. And Mike, would you just define discovery for our audience? Discovery is where the, the, the law requires the prosecution to turn over the evidence uh, that they have and the reports by law enforcement, as well as the evidence that they have gathered to the defense to give the defense an opportunity to digest it, to uh, to do whatever they can to um, to to uh, refute what is in there and um, and to and to just be prepared and not surprised because we don't try cases in this country uh, by surprise. We we give the defense who is the defendant who is presumed innocent the opportunity to defend himself. So that's what discovery is. It's just simply turning over what the cops have, what the prosecutors have to the defense so that they can do what it, with it what they will. You know, Mike, one of the things, and Phil, I'm sorry, I'll bring you in in a second. Sure, sure. Just the organization of this prosecution is very, very difficult. Yes. And you had spoken before about you would start with uh, the roommate, DM, that you would start with her. But there's so much other things that you have to organize that is so, so difficult. And, you know, we spoke about the inexperience of the prosecutor as well as the police in this. And this is really a really tough case to put together. Yes. yes. The the reason that I said before I would start with her is because I would lo- I want to set the tone of the, for the trial, for the jury. I want to, I want the jury immediately to be, um, to be sympathetic and to be empathetic to the peep, the kids who are in that house and to the deceased. That's, that's how, why I would start with her. Then I start to build my case, uh, from there. And, um, and you're correct, Bill, this is a case that I think will probably take, you know, I don't know how long they work on a particular every day in, in, in Idaho, as far as court time, but this is a two or three week, every single day kind of case uh, for the prosecution. And depending upon the cross-examination, it may take even longer than that to put the prosecution's case in. It might be a month. It might be even more than that. But this is this case is loaded with um, with little bits and pieces. I mean, just I, I can see the the Washington State police uh, cop, the cop from Washington State University, on the stand for, you know, for an afternoon, quite frankly, based on the cross-examination, because, um, you know, that piece of evidence is crucial to what's going to be coming, which is how they got to Kohlberger, because it it almost starts with um, with with him in in a certain sense. So um, but you're correct. The prosecutor, one prosecutor cannot do this case. um, uh, It's got to be a team. It's got to be a team. And it's got to be set up where the lead prosecutor is the person who calls the shots as far as who does what and in what order they go to the jury. Very, yeah, very complicated. People don't realize that. The other thing that we didn't mention as far as evidentiary, well, let me just mention Vet Girl, thank you for the 1999 Super Chat. Thank Thank you. The dad mentioned the current news event about a mass shooting during the traffic stop. The dad didn't see his son's car when it was all over the news. Same new press feeds. Thank you. Well, we don't know that, Vet Girl. You're very possible he could have uh, put two and two together and realized that that was, that was his car. Uh, so that's that's a possibility. But I wanted to also mention, Mike, 
let's not forget the search warrant at his apartment in Washington uh, University, yeah. where they recovered his computer, potentially more clothes, maybe a laptop, all kinds, maybe his writings, all kinds of stuff like that. That's more evidence, and we're not even aware of what they recovered in that search warrant. Correct. And you know, the other thing is today, for the first time, or maybe it was last night, Phil saw him on, on, on Fox, but one of his friends has, has come out of the woodwork, so to speak. There may very well be dozens, if not, if it, it, I shouldn't say dozens. There might, they're going to be other pe- people who are going to come forward with, uh, with information about, about this guy, Kohlberger, even if it's just conversations about the way he thinks about women, you know, in terms of how he treats them or how he's treated them, how he, he what he says about them, that kind of thing. So, so all of that is yet to come. You know, in yeah, terms that's of going to establish his thing. profile, that'll be establishing the profile of Brian Kohlberger, Precisely. what he was like, what he was about. Again, we talked about that. Perhaps he had some uh, self-esteem issues when he was younger because of his weight. And he might have been uh, socially inept to uh, interact with women and stuff like that. So all of those things, I think, are going to be very important. But, Mike, you talked about that it's going to be a team effort with the prosecution. You said when we talked about the possible Facebook postings that you would assign someone. And I think that uh, we talked about the the science being the evidentiary part, the DNA, uh, what's going to be very, very uh, you know powerful in the case. But also the technology. When they recover his cell phone, his laptop, his computer, his computer for, from where he worked at uh, Washington State University, perhaps uh, even if Facebook doesn't uh, you know respond to the to the subpoenas or search warrant, we want to get the information, the IP address of that person that was identified as Papa Roger. Perhaps on his cell phone, on his computer, we can establish that yes, he did access Facebook and use that handle Papa Roger. So I guess uh, you're right about assigning a prosecutor to dig into these things because those are the things that uh, a defense attorney could possibly point at, uh, you know, to create a doubt, uh, you know, in the in the prosecution's case. Without a doubt. Now, maybe if they got his handle, that that Facebook handle, and it may not, and Facebook refuses to turn over the information. Well, they may very well be able to go into his social media. Um, uh, history and and find something that this handle is attached to that makes it absolutely positively Kohlberger. Maybe he's talking about something about his mom or his dad or his 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 high school in Pennsylvania or something of that nature. So there are ways to do it without you know necessarily getting the e- without the easy way, which is Facebook turning over the information to law enforcement. But and the and the other thing about a team, Phil is that what you hopefully have are enough people who are savvy and and can handle the technical witnesses or the scientific witnesses uh, or the police witnesses, you know? So if one person can't do it, then the person who is in charge has to pick team members who are versed in doing the, uh, the, the be able to, to handle both direct and cross-examination of um, of the technicians, the scientists, and the cops. That's that's how you do it. You, you know, Mike, that, that's a great point because during the O.J. Simpson case, the jury basically fell asleep during the DNA phase Yeah, because the, the people they had explaining it explained it in a real boring fashion. Correct. Watching CeCe Moore... She, I, I was glued to watching her being interviewed. Oh, she, was terrific. she makes it very interesting. She puts um, it in simple terms. For right, sure. Colleen Fitzpatrick yeah. makes it very interesting. Yeah, so it's absolutely. not like so intimidating. 
but it's so important that the, the jury understands it. Absolutely. And as Phil just said, she did it in with simple terms, not scientific language, but simple everyday language. And that's the kind of witness that you have to find. And then you got to pair them up with the prosecutor who's going to ask the questions to be able to get the information out of them in that way. You know, there are there are sometimes as Bill, I'll use your term. Some of these talking heads come into the courtroom and want to show the jury how smart they are and how, you know, sophisticated they are. And I sometimes said, I said this to a doctor once. I said, Doc, you know, you're great and you're brilliant, but I don't understand a damn word you're saying. Keep so it tell simple. me, you know, keep it simple, stupid. That's the way it's got to yes. be. Exactly. I use that term a lot in investigations because we would start a case and then, you know, some, I don't know, detective or a boss would come up with some conspiracy theory and try to take us off track. No, let's keep it simple. Let's follow the evidence. Let's follow the technology. That's always the key to solving these kind of cases. Yep. You know, Mike, in the same way of what you're talking about, it's so interesting for people to hear these FBI behavioral analysts. But if you get 10 of them, you get nine different opinions, you yeah, know, absolutely. and it's very interesting, but guess what? It's not going to be important at all when they yep. take this case forward and prosecute it. Yep. It's, it's more for the TV audience. Yes, it's absolutely. more for the interest. And, and they're going to have a great in, amount of interest because this is the kind of case that is perfect for a CSI episode where people are, and, and the way that they explain how to solve the case in, on CSI is the way that you hopefully are able to explain it to a jury in a courtroom. Um, they do it simple because you, you can't have somebody on a TV show, you know, talking about scientific terms that no one knows it. No one knows uh, the, the definition of. So they do it simply using writers who aren't scientists. And therefore, and that's the way you've got to do it in a courtroom, because the people who are sitting on the jury are everyday people who live, you know, wherever the, the case is being tried. It's um, well, Mike, I'm sure you also heard about the term CSI effect and CSI oh, effect, you know, is the, the jury pool gets an idea that law enforcement could do things that they have no ability to do because TV says they can. Bill, I can't tell you how many juries I stood in front of trying cases and say to them, there is not going to be a CSI kind of situation here. So don't expect it. What we have are, and then I go with it, three witnesses, two witnesses, whatever, a, a gun, et cetera. But you're not going to have what, you know, somebody's not going to come in here and say that I, I did something on a, uh, you know, on a microscope or with a microscope that told me that this is the thing that, 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 and, and use that as the thing that convicts them. Not You're gonna not going to see David Caruso in this trial. Yeah, absolutely. I've done it. I've done it more times than I can count. And and it became and when CSI first started, it was de rigueur for prosecutors to make sure that they covered that in in um you know in in, in voir dire and in, in, in picking a jury. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Phil, would you do this? Do the honors for this? Sure. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe is a great supporter of police off-the-cuff real crime stories and a terrific trial attorney. 
You know, folks, I just want to say something. I We could probably stay on all afternoon and keep talking about this case, but we're already at an hour and 16 minutes. I want, one of the things I really hope for in this case is that the police and the prosecution own this case, not the press, because the press puts so much horse shit out there that they sort of, the police and the prosecution will start to lose the grip on the case. And I don't want that to happen. But again, you can see even now they're putting out stuff that really doesn't have anything to do with the case right. to keep it sensational. Uh, guys, I'm, that was my last words. Mike, I'm going to give you your last words and then I'll go to Phil. Well, uh, my last words are going to be to thank you guys for having me on again, because um, I, I really love talking about this. And uh, and and I and I'm going to invite myself back in the event that you need me again. <laughs> Homicide is your business, Mike. Homicide yeah. is your business. Well, you know, Mike, exactly. they, they they like you too. I see all thank the comments you. in the chat. They really like you. Thank you, thank you. But I, I my last thing about the case is that sheath. If that's the only evidence they have with DNA, it's still enough. That is the smoking gun, even though it's a knife holder as opposed to a holster. But it's uh, that's the smoking gun. And and I'm but I'm sure that there's more. I'm sure that there's more. So um, it's a great circumstantial case. And it's going to be one that the prosecutor, if they do it right, is going to be able to kind of turn the page. Here's the next piece. Here's the next piece at the next piece. And the next at the end of the day, you're going to have the entire novel there and um, and and the whole story, I should say. So um, that's it. The, the, the you know, the, the sheet we were worried about them not finding the knife. This is almost better than the knife, almost better than the knife, because it's um, it, it's like the guy made a mistake, a big mistake by forgetting this. And um, and I, I would use it. Um, I, I would never stop talking about it if I was the prosecutor at trial. Absolutely. Phil, here's my last words. I want to piggyback both of what uh, Bill and Mike just said. Uh, there's been stories about, you know, in the media about that. He went back to the location. We know that he went back to the area around nine o'clock in the morning, just a few hours after the murders. Someone, uh, one of the talking heads said that he was going back to try and recover the sheet. I think that's absurd. He was not about to go back into that location during daylight hours. That's just another thing, another conspiracy theory that people are putting out there. And again, uh, you know, you got to stick to the facts. Let's just stay with where the case is. Uh, keep these people, these families and these victims in your thoughts and prayers. Uh, it's just a horrible, horrible shame what happened to these four young kids. And uh, I can't imagine what these families are going through. Uh, I think we're going to have Mike on again to talk about this stuff when the trial starts or maybe through some of the phases of the uh, of the hearings. And uh, it's really interesting stuff. And we appreciate our subscribers and our supporters. Thank you so much, guys. And Mike, just one last thing. I'm sorry. Sure. They, the family of DM has to be very, very uh, attuned to what is in what she's in for now as well as later. They have to protect her. 100%. I just want to mention one thing, which I always forget to mention. Of course, Brian Koberger is innocent to proven guilty. Absolutely. That is our system. I think I need to say that um, from the prosecution side, so sometimes I forget to say that. Folks, thank you so much for tuning in today. Uh for Phil Grimaldi and Michael Vecchioni, thank you guys so much. Have a great day, and we'll see you soon. Stay Take care, safe. guys. One episode, just ain't enough.